Greetings. I have to tell you, when uh, I saw how Dr. Jeffrey Freimeyer broke down the preaching schedule and he assigned me the topic of philosophy, <laughs> I said, yikes. <laughs> he really wants to hurt these people. <laughs> uh, how do you bring philosophy to bear in a spiritual atmosphere such as this? So this is going to be a little different than I normally do it when I stand before uh, a setting such as this. So let me begin by suggesting to you, and I hope you stay with me because this is philosophy, and your mental agility might actually be tested. Uh, philosophy really does not try to answer questions. Philosophy only asks questions. That's really the task of philosophy. Once a question has been answered, it is no longer in the realm of philosophy. It falls into the realm of science. That's the uh, actual truth here about philosophy. Speaking about questions, let me just begin with two humorous stories. I hope you will laugh because this is philosophy. There isn't much laughter in it, but here is how it goes. A certain individual uh, met with his friend in some restaurant, and as they were sitting there wondering what to order, the first guy tells the second guy, let's play this game. We will order each of, each of us a, couple, a cup of tea, but let's play this game in the following way. I will ask myself a question. And if I cannot answer it, then I will lose. But if I answer it successfully, I win and you buy me a cup of tea. And the guy says, how is that going to work? He said, trust me, it works. No, it doesn't work. I assure you it works. I'll ask me a question. If I answer it, I win. You buy me a cup of tea. If I don't answer it, you win. And I buy you a cup of tea. Trust me, it works. By the way, this is not my original illustration. I got it from somebody. And uh, the guy said, okay, okay. And then he said, let me show you how it works. Let me go first. I saw a mole that was digging a tunnel underground. And as it dug the tunnel, I realized that it wasn't exactly getting dirty. And so I asked myself, why is it not getting dirty? And I said, I think it has some mechanism in itself that keeps it clean. And the guy that was listening says, wait a minute. 
How is that even possible? And this other guy says, I don't know the answer to that question. You answer it. <laughs> so he had answered his question, but now he gave that person the opportunity to ask himself a question which he could not even answer. So this guy won the game. Here is a second one. A certain politician was traveling from one place to another, campaigning. But he was also a scholar. And he was an expert in a certain area. So his driver would take him to one destination. And he would present his uh, talk to his audience. They would hear him. And then they would have a Q&A. And he would answer all the questions that were raised against him. So he moved from one place. His driver took him to the next destination. He did the same thing. His driver took him to the next destination. He did the same thing. He did that for a whole three, four days. On the fifth day, the driver was taking him to his first talk that day. And the driver tells him, hey, you know what? I've been listening to your talk all these four days. And I think I can do your talk for you. And the guy says, you can? Oh, yeah, I think I can do it. He says, okay. At our next stop, these guys don't know me. I'll let you talk, and I'll sit there and listen to you present the talk. Would you believe it? This guy stood up and delivered the talk word for word with remarkable accuracy. Finally, it was Q&A time, and this guy was not prepared. So he was asked a question about an issue that he had mentioned in the talk. He listens to the question, and he doesn't know what to do. So finally, he responded to that guy and he said, hey, you sound like a bright young man. I'm surprised that at your level of education, you don't even know the answer to that question. That question is so simple, my driver here can answer it. <laughs> Philosophy is about questions. It's about asking questions. And when you ask questions, the philosophical position that presents itself to you must at least meet four tests. The first test is logical consistency. What I say must be logically consistent without inherent contradictions. And the second test must be that of explanatory power. It must have power in its explanations without uh, bad grammar, of which I'm guilty because English is not my native language. And you have those kinds of issues about expressions and so forth. So it must have explanatory power, logical consistency, explanatory power. It must also have factual adequacy, factual adequacy. In other words, uh, what you say in theory must be supported by facts. And then there's a fourth dimension, experiential relevance. The question is, once you have explanatory power ex uh, and logical consistency and factual adequacy, experiential relevance asks the question, so what? Now that you've given me all this stuff, so what? Uh, what is the meaning of all this? How do I understand this? But I add a fifth dimension, and that is biblical fidelity. I believe biblical fidelity 
really puts the idea of godly wisdom, or if you like, Christ-centered philosophy in its proper perspective. And my talk today is really about godly wisdom or Christ-centered wisdom, if you like it. The Apostle Paul presents it to us in this way. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. I dare say to you that godly wisdom guards against deceptive philosophy. Godly wisdom guards against humanistic philosophy. And godly wisdom guards against naturalistic philosophy. When we think through these concepts and try to wrestle with them, we must always keep God in perspective. Godly wisdom guards against deceptive philosophy. Scripture says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. The original text actually separates the two. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow philosophy, hollow or empty thinking and philosophy. But apparently the translators are bringing those two together. Deceptive philosophy. It is empty. Deceptive philosophy is empty. The word being used there in the original languages denotes the idea of emptiness. It denotes the idea of falsity. It denotes the idea of fallaciousness. See to it that no one takes you captive through fallacious philosophy, through hollow philosophy, through false and deceptive philosophy. It seems to be an attempt to champion the virtues of truth. That anytime you are taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, you will not be able to recognize truth even when it's dangled before you. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche asked this question in a book entitled The Transvaluation of Values. He asked this question, what if what we call good today is really evil? And what we call evil today is really good? He asks that question in that book. And he says, to be sure, that is the original Greek philosophy understanding of morality. That what we call good today in the Greek world was really bad. And what we call evil today in the Greek understanding of value was good. Because in the Greek understanding of value, good was equated with the successful, the aristocrat, those who have made it in life, the masters, and bad was associated with the slaves, with the wimps, with the unsuccessful, with the people who have failed in life. But the problem is the people who had failed in life resented the idea of being called bad by the successful ones. And these guys, if you look at the Greco-Roman world, 
could be characterized by the two cultures that were predominantly at that time in existence. The Roman world ruled over the Christian world. So much so that, according to Nietzsche, the Roman world were the good guys because they were successful. The Christians were the bad guys because they were the wimps, the unsuccessful. Interestingly enough, the Christians were able to overthrow the Romans through, he says, the very, 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 very uh, strange and deceptive teaching of Jesus, of turning the other cheek. So when the Romans ruled over them, Jesus said, when they slap you, turn the other cheek. When they take your shirt, give him a second one. When they take you one mile, take him two miles. He says, this teaching of Jesus was so crafty, so says Nietzsche, that when the Romans listened to that teaching, they were so taken up by it that eventually the Christians conquered the Romans. They conquered the Romans because the Roman world found the teaching of Christ so attractive that they, they caught the bait they bit into the bait. They were captured by it. And now, today, the Christians are victorious because Rome today bows before two Jews and one Jewess. Namely, Peter, Jesus, Peter, and Mary. He says that's how they won. And that's why the Christian value today is called good. And the Roman value today of being successful, being rich, is called evil. And Nietzsche says, we must go back to our original understanding of good and evil. And that will be brought by no other person than the Antichrist. Friends, good and evil. Good and evil. So says a preacher I like listening to very much. Good and evil, like the negative and positive currents of an electric, uh, good and evil like the negative and positive poles of an electric current. If you transpose the two, darkness will fall. And I'm suspecting that today what we call good has been deemed evil, dull, and boring. What Christianity presents as good is evil, dull, and boring. And what the secular world presents as, as, uh, as, uh, as evil, that's what Christianity thinks the secular world is what Christianity finds as evil in the secular world has pre been presented as good. Good and evil are like the negative and positive poles of an electric current. And we have transvalued, we have transposed our values. That's why there's so much darkness today. People don't know what is truth anymore. People don't know what is fake news and true news. People don't know the difference between right and wrong. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Godly wisdom helps you to guard against deceptive philosophy. Godly wisdom helps you to guard against not only deceptive philosophy, but also humanistic philosophy. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition. Humanism is the idea that man is the measure of all things. I actually have a book by that title in one of my shelves. It's called Man is the Measure of All Things. 
that human beings are the promulgators of moral law, that human beings set the standard for morality, that human beings set the standard of how we ought to live. We are the measure of all things. And I ask, as various other thinkers have asked, and I got this question from them, which human being? Hugh Hefner? Osama bin Laden? Idi Amin? Which human being? The people there in Hollywood? Which human being sets the standard for morality? I had just completed my dissertation at the University of Kentucky. And one naturalistic philosopher who also seemed to be a humanist had listened to my talk and my presentation and so forth. And he, at the end of my uh, studying there, I happened to meet him at the hallway. And he called me and said, Joseph, can I talk to you? I said, yeah, sure. So I went over to him. He was one of my advisors. And he said, I have books here that I'm giving away. Would you like some books? I said, actually, my shelf is so full. I don't know that I can take additional books. Well, would you help me uh, move my books from my office to another place? I said, yeah, I can do that to you. And then he said, I am stepping down from my position as professor at this institution. And that took me aback. I asked him, why? He said, I have a debilitating disease that's eating me even as I speak with you. It's eating me alive. And then he said, I'm going home to die. He was a humanist. I'm going home to die. And then he broke down, gave me a hug. And that took me by surprise. Professors don't hug their students, but he decided to hug me. So I hugged him back, gave him a double pat, double rub, double pat. <laughs> then I said, OK. I can't tell him, don't worry, it will all be well. The best I could have told him, which I did not, was that, hang in there. You're a human being. But that comes in woefully inadequate to help him walk through that situation. That was difficult. That was a difficult experience to watch. But here he was, a humanist who knew just about every precept of Christian theology because his father was a minister, but he had abandoned that belief. Godly wisdom helps us to guard against deceptive philosophy, helps us to guard against humanistic philosophy. Third and finally, it helps us to guard against naturalistic philosophy. Stay with me now because this gets heavy. Naturalistic philosophy, we have about three brands of naturalism. The first brand is called metaphysical naturalism. Metaphysical naturalism says supernatural entities do not exist. Only those entities that are physical are the ones that exist. Supernatural entities such as God, angels, ghosts, souls, spirits, demons, those don't exist. That is the claim of metaphysical naturalism. Now, why do I say metaphysical naturalism? Because that scripture, Colossians 2.8, 
has mentioned the idea of naturalism. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, that is humanistic philosophy, and the basic principles of this world. The original text really does say the principles of this natural world. Naturalism. Metaphysical naturalism basically says supernatural entities do not exist. Methodological naturalism, naturalism says the scientific method is the only reliable method of arriving at truth about the world. The scientific method is the only reliable method of arriving at truth about the world. I was teaching a Sunday school class in a church that I attend, and the person said, as a scientist who thinks naturalistically, I find it very difficult to believe in the existence of God, even though I am a Christian. I find it very difficult to believe that. And I told him, so you go by the principles of science in everything you do? He said, yeah. Well, tell me, have you tested the existence of, of, of love in a laboratory? Have you been able to detect love? He said, no. Do you love your wife? He said, yeah, of course I do. Well, how did you know you love your wife if you did not arrive at that conclusion by science? How do you know that? Then he said, Joseph, you really intimidate me. I said, uh-oh. I won the argument and lost the, pers the person. That was my main takeaway from that. But naturalistic principles. You have metaphysical, methodological, and semantic naturalism. Basically says the only meaningful statements are those that can be mathematically quantified and empirically verified. David Hume, by the way, was the guy notorious for this. He says the only meaningful statements are those that can be empirically verified and mathematically quantified. So if I take a volume of theology such as this, I ask myself this question, is it empirically verifiable? No. Is it mathematically quantifiable? No. I therefore commit it to the flames. That's how he said it. Here's one problem. That statement does not pass its own test. The statement cannot be empirically verified. It cannot be mathematically quantified. That statement, too, should be committed to the flames. And yet, when you think through the seriousness of what is implied, the basic idea is that godly wisdom has been thrown out of the window. May I bring to you what the Bible says about godly wisdom. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is speaking. Proverbs chapter 8, it says, wisdom now. The Lord, verse 22, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning before the world began. When there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the earth or its fields or any of the dust of the world, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, 
Then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not ignore it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For whoever finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. But whoever fails to find me harms himself. All who hate me love death. Maybe that's why it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. When I think of worldly wisdom, I think of how Plato was probably one of the greatest philosophers that ever lived, that all subsequent philosophy of Plato and Aristotle, we are told that all subsequent philosophy up to today are merely footnotes to Aristotle and Plato. But Plato came, he was replaced by Aristotle. Augustine came, he was replaced by Aquinas. Shakespeare came, he was replaced by Dickens. And the only person that has never been replaced is Jesus Christ. He remains the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Master of the Universe. What he redeems, no one can condemn. What he condemns, no one can redeem. Godly wisdom truly belongs to him. God bless you.